0: Welcome to Tribes Podcast. Thank you for making this message a part of your week. If you're ever in Jackson Hole, we would love for you to visit our tribe family. We meet on Sundays at 5.30 at the Snow King Conference Center. And if you'd like to know more about us, you can find us online or on Facebook by searching tribejh.com. Yes, yes. No, no. Yes, yes. All right. So that squeak was not Adrian's fault. That was mine. I turned my mic on when Brian was talking, and so just want to make sure credit goes where credit is due. Uh, well, it's good to be here this evening with you. If I say morning, forgive me. Uh, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a joy to be with Brian and Lissy. As Brian said, we've done ministry way back in the day for a long time. And uh, now we live in Portland, Oregon. My wife, Megan, my three kids, Anaya, Deacon, and Coulter. And uh, it's a joy to, to be visiting here and to, to reconnect And to see Selah and Kai, uh, beautiful and handsome kids, growing in God's grace. So um, today is Father's Day, and I do want to uh, share a word, not specifically to fathers, but, but rather about our Father in heaven and the call that Jesus gives to us as his disciples to trust that our Father in heaven knows best and that he deserves our undivided devotion. Well, the scripture I want to call your attention to this evening is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to use it, to open it up. Uh, It's rich with treasures. It's always pointing us to Jesus, so Romans, no Romans, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Now, this passage of scripture is found within Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. Jesus at this time in the text is in northern Israel. He's along the Sea of Galilee. He's gone up on a mountain to teach his disciples about the kingdom of heaven and the heart and life that should mark God's children, God's people. And throughout this message, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually points to the Father. If you briefly would look with me at a few previous verses to help set the context and to hear Jesus' heart and relation to his Father, if you look in chapter 15, Jesus is telling his disciples that they are the light of the world. They are a, a city set on a hill. He tells them, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Later on, Jesus commanded his disciples to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them so that they may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It goes on in verse 48 to tell them they must be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. In chapter 6, it's full of references to God as Father and, and living for the Father's reward. When we do our good deeds, we should do them not for the praise of men, but for the, our Father who sees in secret will reward us. When we pray, we're not to pray for men, but to go into our room, to shut the door, and pray to our Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when we pray, we pray our Father in heaven. What a, what a glorious mystery that when we talk to God, we can call him Father, Abba, Daddy. He says when we forgive, he says we, he calls us to forgive, and that if we forgive, our Heavenly Father will forgive us, but if we don't forgive, then our Heavenly Father won't forgive us. Hard words. He speaks on fasting. He says, don't, be, don't fast to be seen by men, but to be Rather hungry for God, trusting that your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so throughout this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing the people of Israel the sweet intimacy and fellowship that God has always desired to have with his people, like a father towards his children. Now, I obviously am, am a, in a new face to a lot of you, and I don't know where you are at with, with your walk with Jesus, but Christianity is, is not some perfunctory code or, or moral obligations. It is a dynamic living relationship of trusting and obeying a good, loving Father. So I hope that helps set the stage for our text this morning. And in our text, Jesus is gonna be charging his disciples, and that includes us. If you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then Jesus is gonna be charging us, encouraging us, commanding us to a very simple but powerful transformational reality. Your Father in heaven knows best. So trust him and live a life of undivided devotion to King Jesus. Now if I was to identify the golden thread or the melodic line that I believe Jesus in the author or Matthew here are communicating to the audience and to the reader, it would be this, your Father in heaven knows best best. Give him your undivided devotion. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I'm going to read the text: read chapters six, verses nineteen to thirty-four. Most of my time is just going to be on nineteen to twenty-four, but I want to read God's word, set the set the context, and um, Matthew chapter six, verses nineteen to thirty-four. I'm reading out of the ESV. That's what I usually use. Um, Jesus is speaking. For he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. Well, let's, let's pray together. Father, we wanna thank you that you are a good Father, thank you for this day, for Father's Day. Thank you that you are good and strong and wise. You do all things well. You will work all things for the good of those who love you. You've called us by your grace. You've brought us to this place this evening. Well, we thank you that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Father, we recognize that every one of us here has an earthly father. And we know that with that come many blessings. And also in many respects, it comes with pain. The Lord, we pray that today we would look to you as our good Father, and even if we may be estranged from our earthly Father, we know that you are our heavenly Father who has given us so much in the gospel. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your only begotten Son that we might trust in him and have life in his name. And Father, Father, I ask that you help us to see clearly today. Jesus said that if we saw him, we saw you, we saw the Father. So would you illuminate our eyes and our hearts to see you as you truly are, a good Father who knows what's best. We love you, Father. We thank you for being a good dad that we can trust. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, in verses 19 to 24, we see Jesus expound one singular theme, Father knows best. You're going to hear me say that a lot. I used to be a teacher for about eight years, and repetition is a very powerful tool, so you'll hear me say that a lot. Father knows best, so give him your undivided devotion. Now, Jesus is going to illustrate this point with three analogies, two treasures, two visions, and two masters. And I'm actually going to work our way backward through these three analogies we'll start with two masters and then two visions and finally two treasures so let's begin at verse 24 and look at two masters no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money two masters god and money Throughout the entirety of these verses, we find these two masters juxtaposed. We must pledge allegiance to one or to the other. We are not free agents. We are either subject to God or subject to money. Well, who has subjects? Those who are in authority. And since the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he has been preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdoms have a king. Who's the king of heaven? Jesus And he rightfully, as king, demands our undivided devotion and allegiance. Now, perhaps you don't like the idea of undivided devotion. It seems too risky, too scary, too limiting. You buck against the idea of a king telling you what to do, making you swear allegiance. Let's bring it down to level and see if we can relate to it on a different plane. Take undivided devotion and allegiance out of the kingdom realm and perhaps to something more familiar for you like sports. Say, the World Cup. Yes. Represent. Uh, it began last Thursday. Sadly, the United States is not in it. Tiny little Trinidad and Tobago. Thank you. Uh, but Friday's match, Portugal versus Spain, ended with a 3-3 draw after Portugal's Cristiano Ronaldo pulled off an amazing free kick to restore the tie. But imagine if what for a moment, if during that match, late in the second half, Ronaldo... Gets tired of playing for Portugal, takes off his Portugal jersey, throws on Spain's jersey, just for a few minutes, but just enough to score a point for Spain and give Spain the win. How would the Portugal fans respond? Or today, Neymar, Brazil, right? If he takes off his jersey and puts on Switzerland's jersey, right? (laughs) Ain't gonna happen, right? He'd be dead. Or perhaps consider undivided devotion to a marriage level, husband and wife. Are you really serious about those vows where you promise to forsake all others, to cleave only to him or her as long as you both shall live? Isn't it okay to once in a while go out and have a one-night stand? Your spouse wouldn't mind that, right? Of course not. Dads, you wouldn't mind today if your kids decided to give your, their Father's Day cards and gifts and their affections to their friend's dad instead of you. You're cool with that, right? It was funny. Brian and I were um, staying with him, and you know, how would it be if my son or, or, or Kai came up and came up and said, happy Father's Day, and gave you know, the wrong dad a hug? We'd be livid. Even though we're good friends, we'd be like, that's, that's not how it works. Of course not. In family, in marriage, in sports, in so many areas of life, we fundamentally believe in this idea of allegiance and devotion. Allegiance and devotion to one's family, one's spouse, even one's team is serious business. Divided allegiances, divided devotions will destroy you and the community you're a part of. And so when we look at the kingdom of heaven and our call as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we ought to see how serious, right, and good this call is to undivided devotion. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God. I pledge allegiance to the Lion of Judah. The psalmist writes in Psalm 2, kiss the Son or pay homage to the Son. This idea of devotion and homage and allegiance Anything else in undivided devotion to Jesus will lead to destruction. But why? Why can't we serve two masters, God and money? Well, Jesus says, we'll grow to hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Well, why? Like kids, we we like to ask why a lot. Because their vision for your lives are completely different. So two visions. Verse 22. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye is the lamp of the body. What we fix our gaze on governs what we do with our lives, how we live, where we go. What we focus on and pursue reveals the deep devotions of our heart. It shows what we love. What is your vision for your life? Where are you headed? Is your eye focused on the kingdom of heaven or accumulating earthly wealth? Can it be both? Not according to Jesus. Paul warns us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and that by pursuing it, by fixing our eyes on the accumulation of wealth, some have wandered away from the faith. Your vision, your gaze must be singular, undivided, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, this is kind of a, a bit of a confusing analogy, so a helpful way, at least for me to better understand it, I was studying and reading different commentaries on this text, is to make another analogy to understand more of what Jesus is saying. So replace the word eye in this text with the word goal, and replace the word body with the word life. If your goal is healthy, what you're looking at or aiming for your whole life will be full of light. But if your goal is bad, your whole life, your whole body will be full of darkness. If our lives are dictated by the goal of wealth and more money, our lives will be bad, full of greed and selfishness. But if our goal is healthy, our life will be full of light. What about this word healthy? It's actually a very interesting word. It means unfolded, single, literally without folds, undivided. One Greek dictionary describes it as without a secret double agenda. James uses the same word in chapter one when he refers to God as being the God who gives generously to all without finding fault. That word generously is the same word as the word healthy here in Matthew. It speaks of God being liberal, being generous, being singularly focused to give wisdom to those who ask. God is not duplicit. Your Father in heaven is not duplicit. There is no double agenda with God. He has resolved to give wisdom. He has set his affection, his vision, his gaze on you. Amen? Amen? We serve a God who is not divided towards wanting to bless his children with wisdom and with grace. We serve a generous, giving God. Our Father truly knows what's best. Our vision, our eye, our goal ought to be the same, like father, like son. A healthy goal is to be generous to others and undividedly devoted to blessing them. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And yet if our vision, our goal, our eye is greedy and divided and distracted, Full of loveless darkness, then our lives will never come into focus, and in our bodies, our lives will be torn apart. Perhaps you feel that tonight. Perhaps you feel divided in your life. Well, in a comical way, it's kind of like that Volvo commercial with Jean Claude Van Damme. Anybody seen it? Yes. No. Maybe so. It's a little dated, uh, but he's between these two huge Volvo semi trucks, and he's doing the middle splits. And these huge Volvo semi-trucks are barreling down the road, and they begin to diverge. And we think that we can do that. We think we can go through life with two visions for our lives. But as these two massive semis barrel down the road, they begin to diverge, and they begin to divide, and we foolishly think that we have the ninja-like or gumbo-like skills to keep it all together. But it simply isn't true. Our lives do need a singular, healthy, generous Vision, our focus, our aim, our goal reveals where our devotion and our allegiance lies. Ecclesiastes says, he who loves money will never be satisfied. Proverbs says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be wise enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. Suddenly, it takes to itself wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. A 19th century German philosopher said, when he compared wealth to seawater, the more we drink, the thirstier we become. If money is your God, if money is my God, it is an idol in your life, enough will never be enough, and you'll never cultivate a robust theology of risk. Now, what do I mean by that, cultivate a robust theology of risk? Well, money promises things. It promises the illusion of security, of stability, of insulation from pain and discomfort, further removed, bigger house, taller fence, more toys, fill in the blank trying to keep away the strains and the pains of life. We want comfort, and, and money provides that. So if Jesus promises his disciples that in this world you will have trials and suffering and, and hardship, and money, money promises you insulation and security from those yucky things, then as you try to follow Jesus and serve this idle money, your risk factor is always going to be trumped by the love of money. You may even couch it with wanting to be a good steward, be fiscally responsible, be that proverbial aunt who leaves an inheritance to their children's children, all of which are good things. But those things may often hide a reluctance and an unwillingness to step out in faith, to take a risk and trust God to provide. Is Jesus Lord? Does your father truly know what's best? As we were singing that song, all my all my devotion I poured out to you, I was reminded of, of John 12 where, where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this bottle of very expensive nard, you know, perfume. And people like, you know, Judas Iscariot is like, hey, what are you doing? Why, why, why are you wasting that? That could be sold and give to the poor when really he was a thief and he wanted to, to steal it. So when we have that opportunity to make some great sacrifice financially for the kingdom of God, there's gonna be that voice that siren that's saying, oh, no, don't, don't, don't do that. that that's, not, that's, not, that's not wise or that's, that's foolish. Well, a former pastor of mine had a generous vision. And for much of his life, he had a successful business. He was an electrician. He loved Jesus. He loved the church. He had three kids. He adopted two more kids, trying to seek first the kingdom of God. He lived a fairly middle-class lifestyle, owned their own home, lived in a comfortable neighborhood. And one day he and his wife became aware of a great missionary need overseas. So they began to pray and seek counsel and, and, and just talk, what should we do? And, and you know what they did? They sold their house. They sold their house and they gave a large chunk of change to this missionary endeavor. And they went back to being renters. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you're a renter, but if you're a renter, you're like, oh, I want to own my home. You know, and once you get there, you feel like you've arrived, right? And now he owner, successful businessman, he sells it all, goes back to being a renter. And the world's eyes, perhaps even in your fiscally responsible eyes as you hear me tell the story, he went backwards. What was he thinking? Could I do that? Would Megan and I do that? Would that be a wise thing to do? But again, Jesus calls us to follow him. And following him will often involve risk. And if money's an idol, our goal towards Money, if our goal towards money is greedy insulation, then we'll have a very weak and an impotent, powerless theology of risk and general living. So I commend the brother for his generous vision, for his undivided devotion. And I pray that if God calls you or me to a similar financial risk, that you would be devoted, that I would be devoted to King Jesus. Trust that our Father knows best and store up treasure in heaven. It may not be that you have to sell your house. Maybe, though. Maybe you have to sell your car, be content with the car that you have. Maybe a little more closer to home, you may have to sell your skis or be comfortable with last year's model of skis. Yeah, who knows? Maybe God will call you to take a different job that doesn't pay as much. Listen to Martin Luther, famous Protestant reformer, as he speaks of our desperate need for the gospel to inform our views of money. He says, apostasy... From the gospel we must make a man so possessed by the devil that he simply cannot be greedy enough. And on the other hand, whoever really has the gospel in his heart becomes mild. Not only does he stop scratching, but he also gives everything away, is willing to risk whatever he can and should. So again, Jesus is not speaking against wealth, He is speaking against the love of money, against coveting and, and holding on to good things that God has given us and turning them into idols that will enslave us. The theologian John Stott said Jesus does not prohibit being provident or planning or making provision for the future, but against being covetous. Many godly people have a great wealth. And the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 encourages those who are rich to be rich in good works, generous, willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves in heaven. And friends, on a global standard, all of us in this room are rich. We are the 1%, I would, I would imagine. So again, the issue is not about the amount of money, but where our devotion lies. Where is your heart? Where is your devotion? You know, you may be making minimum wage right now, eking out an existence. And this warning against the love of money that Jesus calls us to here could be more for you this evening than it is for a brother or sister here who's maybe making six figures what matters is where your allegiance and the devotion of your heart's heart is is your goal is your eye towards generosity or is it towards greed well friends jesus tells us it is more blessed to give than to receive that you will be more happy if you give than if you hoard earthly treasure which leads us to our final analogy of two treasures in verse 19 Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Some commentators say this should be translated stop laying up treasures on earth thus implying that this nagging temptation towards earthly hoarding is resident in all of us, right? We know the attics. We know the garages. We know those places. are like, ugh, you know? And garage sales are like, praise the Lord. But then we get rid of stuff, but then we just, you know, get more stuff. So our Lord is continually encouraging and commanding us to store up our treasure in heaven. Well, again, as, as kids, we often ask, why? Why shouldn't I lay up treasures on earth? Well, And a very straightforward response, because our Father in Heaven knows best. He's telling us not to, right? It should be as simple as that. Fathers, right? You had your kids ask you things, and you say, and they ask why, and you say, because I said so. Because I'm your dad. Because I love you. Because I'm 40, and you're eight, you know? I know what's best. Trust me. But we keep asking why. Well, it's a bad investment, storing up treasures on earth. Natural evil, Jesus says, moth and rust will destroy. Human evil, thieves will destroy. Won't last, so don't do it. But you may say we're creatures driven by pleasure, driven by this desire for treasure. Is that a bad thing? Should we simply not desire treasure, desire rewards? No, the problem isn't desire for treasure or pleasure. Christianity is not stoic. It's not stoic. It's not do this, don't do that. True religion, biblical Christianity, is it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We serve a self giving God. God does not need you. If you came to church this evening because you think God needs you, God doesn't need you, God wants you. He is a self giving, generous God. And if we're going to be like him, that's going to mark our lives, that we're going to be self-giving, generous people, storing up our treasures in God. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 16, in your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures Forevermore, The desire for treasure and pleasure is not the problem. It's the direction of those desires. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourself treasures in God, treasures with God. Don't get distracted by fool's gold. Don't get hoodwinked by the carnival crazies. Don't. I love that word carnival. Anybody, you know, carne asada or chili con carne. Carne means flesh. So a carnival is literally a flesh festival. You don't want to be that guy or gal behind that tilt-a-world the puking their guts out after eating too much cotton candy and elephant ears. You've seen the old movie Charlotte's Web. You don't want to be like Templeton, right, after he goes out and just gluttons it up. Right? We think that this, this desire for earthly wealth is going to satisfy, but, but it doesn't. It really doesn't. Now, you may not be a carnival crazy, but... Here in Jackson, it has its own manifestations of carnival craziness. And I may be hitting too close to home and may offend some of you. But I've lived in Jackson and I've I've been in it and swam in it and Jackson aspires and praises itself as being this great spiritual healthy community. You know, but so much of it is shallow. It is this external facade of the latest and greatest gear and gizmos and gadgets and food fads, constantly trying to impress people with the hike you did or the mountain you climbed or the river you rafted or you know whatever it is, the healthy body that you have or the simple living or the sustainable or the local or whatever. None of those things in and of themselves are bad things, but we begin to define ourselves by those and compare ourselves to one another. When in reality an overweight Midwestern factory worker in Ohio who barely sees the light of day, has never climbed a mountain, who would die trying to hike Snow King, he may be more with it than you are. I remember I was a rafting guy back in the day and we were going down the Snake River and I was talking to this gentleman and asked him what he did and he worked in a factory making saran wrap Nothing wrong with that. All of us use saran wrap. But in my mind, I felt pity for him. I'm like, I'm out here in this glorious place, not making very much, but you're stuck in a factory making saran wrap. And I think if we're, if we're not careful, some of, us, some of us here in Jackson and in this kind of hip and, and cool and outdoor culture would begin to compare ourselves towards other people based on those just trifle things. But if you're an overweight factory worker in, in Ohio and you love Jesus and you love your family and you love the church and you're nice to people and kind to people and you're generous, you know that and you trust that your father knows best, you're, you're doing the right thing. You're following Jesus and you're gonna be a lot happier than someone who just, you know, you know, fill in the blank here in Jackson all the different things you can say that you've done and, you know, Notches on your belt. Now perhaps, you know, you're in the ski bum adrenaline buzz culture. Ski paddle climb. Then you go to the brew pub or the stagecoach or the mangy moose. Or back in the day, the shady lady. I was talking to Brian Lissy about that. Um, And then, you know, you hook up with that hot guy or that cute girl. And you do that for a season. And then you travel during the off season. Go somewhere else fun. Then you come back and you repeat it. And you're stuck in that rat race, even though you think that you're not in the rat race because you're not, you know, stuck in traffic somewhere in some big city. But you're just as much of a rat race as as that person is. So if that's you and you say you love Jesus, Jesus said if you love me, you'll obey me. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. I'm just trying to be honest. And God loves you too much for you to be deceived and think that you're living the dream because you're in Jackson and healthy and whatever. Every place, every people have their vanities. Make it personal. Portlandia, where I come from. We have our own carnival crazies. The ridiculously expensive coffee, you know, a $5 cup of coffee. Just coffee, nothing in it. Or the gazillion micro brews, you know, the hipster this, that, and the other. The key Portland weird mantra where everything that is sexualized or radical or crazy is welcomed and embraced, but a life of honesty and fidelity and, and hard work and just sincere devotion to King Jesus. It's viewed as bigoted, as Republican, as ignorant, or whatever other ridiculous nonsense millennials or baby boomers spew out of their open minds. So the carnival craziness is all over us. It's not it's not local, it's, it's systemic. And the reason I make it personal like that is because God, our Father in heaven, loves us too much and he doesn't want us, to quote C.S. Lewis, to settle for mud pies in the slums, right? When he offers us a holiday at the sea. Store up your treasures in heaven. Undivided devotion to Jesus will not disappoint. It won't. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus loves his disciples. He knows that fathers knows best and he's trying to teach us to trust that our father loves us, that he knows we need, that we need what we need and he doesn't want us to be disappointed. Consider just a couple scriptures regarding this idea of trusting that God knows what's best, our father knows what's best. John 14, right before Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. He's in the midst of this horrific suffering, this adversity, and yet he's the man and he charges his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also That is a promise, brothers and sisters, that you can take to the bank. It's not pie in the sky. That's a reality that you can stake your life on. He who promised is faithful. Jesus, in Luke 12, which is a parallel passage to Matthew 6 here, Jesus says these words, one of my favorite scriptures, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's a promise that you can take to the bank. It's a check that you can cash. It's not going to come back in sufficient funds. Your father knows best, and he deserves your undivided devotion. Well, again, as kids, we keep asking, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? Well, the reason you can be sure is because of the gospel. Because the reality is, as much as you and I strive by God's grace to live a life of undivided devotion, we will always come up short. The point of my message this evening is not try harder, right? You don't come to church just here, try harder, suck it up, get her done, right? The point is to look to what God has provided for us in Christ, and learn to trust that our Father in heaven knows best. Our Father knew that our allegiance, my allegiance and devotion to God was going to be subpar, insufficient, lacking, negligent. So what does our Father do? Does he simply send Jesus to tell us that? Try harder, shape up? No, Jesus came to live that life of undivided devotion trusting that Father knows best that you and I have failed to live. He came to fully trust that his Father in heaven knows best. And rather than question God and take that insidious bait of Satan, did God really say, which you will hear throughout the entirety of your life as you walk through this world, you read God's word and then another voice says, did God really say, we, we know better. He didn't believe that lie. He trusted his father. And he says, I only do what the father tells me to do. He lived the life. Jesus lived the life of undivided devotion. He trusted that his father in heaven knows best. You know what he's done, what Jesus has done? He's given that perfect Sinless life of undivided devotion and trust, he's given that to us, to those who repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for their sins. Jesus died for your sins and Jesus rose again for your justification. Jesus lived the life that you failed to live. He died the death that I deserve to die. Our bank account was empty. We were bankrupt. Jesus not only paid off your debt, but he put into your account, hear me, Jesus puts into your account the infinite wealth of his perfect righteousness, of his undivided devotion. Justification by faith. That was a hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. It's not simply just as if I've never sinned. That was one way that I was taught when I was younger. Justification, just as if I've, all, I've never sinned. In a sense, you are forgiven. But it's also just as if I've always obeyed. Not only are you forgiven, brothers and sisters, but you are righteous. Not only are you forgiven, you are righteous. Christ has to taken my pathetic devotion, call it what it is, right? Or rather my rebellion, my sedition against his rightful rule and reign. He's the king, right? He says he holds everything together by the word of his power. And yet I want to keep questioning and say, did God really say? So he takes that rebellion and that lack of devotion he freely gives me he freely gives you his undivided devotion his perfect obedience martin luther called it the great exchange one final page here and i'm done <laughs> consider second corinthians 5 Paul speaking, he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus does not have a scorecard. The Father does not have a scorecard on your life. If you are in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. He's buried them in the depths of the sea. He's hidden them behind his back. He has paid for it all. He's not counting their trespasses against them and he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, here's the great exchange. God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this doesn't mean life is gonna be easy. The path of discipleship is hard work. Trusting that your father knows best and giving him your, your undivided devotion is difficult. It is painful. My life has not been easy. My wife and I, we've weathered many trials and storms. Life is hard. Trusting God in the midst of a broken world but it's the right thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. And through all of our storms, God has been faithful. Our Father knows best. And in the midst of the trials, we learn to suffer well. Instead of keep questioning God, we learn to trust that our Father knows best and he deserves our undivided devotion. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, your father knows best. You can trust him. and You can give him your undivided devotion. Because Jesus lived the life that you failed to live. He died the death you deserved to die. And he rose again, ascended to the right hand of the father, and he sent the Holy Spirit to empower you to new life. His mercies are new every morning. You don't have to be shaped by your past. You don't have to be shaped by your earthly father. The goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of God, to be conformed to be like our Father in heaven. Amen.